Curiosity is a good way of understanding and valuing our relationship to the material world. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. If you could collect anything, what would it be? What is it about the things we cherish and collect that makes us want to cherish and collect them? And isn't that a special expression of our curiosity, our caring about things we value as beautiful or unusual or curious? Today's show is part of a series featuring the contributing authors to Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge. Part of the goal of this series of conversations is to showcase the relevance, dare I say, excitement of unapologetically scholarly writing in combination with real-world examples. You'll see what I mean. Barbara M. Benedict is a professor of English at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and a collections connoisseur. She's published widely on curiosity and authored a chapter on curiosity and collecting in English literature that is equal parts history lesson and social romp. So welcome, Barbara. It's delightful to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. You're a professor of English, and you've written that literature best unfolds its beauty and meaning for students when understood as the achievement of the cultural instant that reaches out to all human experience. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Well, literature is a very special kind of cultural product. It requires a lot of time and energy by the writer, and it it requires from the reader or the audience commitment and a sort of selfless plunging into identification with characters and Mm. belief in plots. You know, if you've ever read anything like a mystery story, you know that you get caught up in it, and in a sense you're being controlled by the narrative. So there's a yielding of personality. Mm -hmm. And that would be meaningless if whatever the story is about didn't have some pertinence for your own life. But the only way you can really, as a writer, fulfill that that's potential to make your writing pertinent to the human experience is if you represent what's happening now at that particular time, mm. not generalities, but exactly how things feel and, and smell and taste and all the issues that are around being a human at that moment of time. Oddly enough, the more specific the cultural moment, the more it kind of yields meanings for everybody. You know, I was, my next question was sort of what took you to curiosity in literature, but I think you've just given me a hint to that, haven't you? <laughs> well, there's also another answer. There's several answers to that. The biographical answer is, in a way, the least interesting. Um, my father was an anthropologist, and he also was a collector of absolutely everything, ah. um, which is kind of a nightmare in a way. So I grew <laughs> up with the, sen- with the desire to examine objects, to look mm-hmm. at things. That was just sort of part of our family reality. Um, So that's one answer. But the other answer, which is actually rather disappointing, I think, to many people, is that I was reading an 18th century novel, writing another book at the time. The novel is called Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the narrator kept referring to the reader as the curious reader. Now, that seems as if it ought to be a compliment. And yet, I did feel, I think rightly, that I was being slightly sneered at or Uh. put down 
by this. That you were sort of the busybody reader or the... Yes, or that what I wanted was mm-hmm. something prurient or not really legitimate. Mm. And the curiosity was sort of out of place. Mm-hmm. So I decided to look up the word curiosity and see what it referred to. And then to my astonishment, I realized it referred to curiosities, objects of inquiry, just as much as the inquiring urge itself. And so there you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and one of the things that struck me in your chapter was this evolution of the use of the word Mm -hmm. and the language that we put around the idea of curiosity, the judgments, the gendering, um, and how that's evolved over time. Tell me more about what you've seen with that and where you see it going. Well, the curiosity, contrary to what most people think, was actually considered a passion and something of a vice in the early period. The Bible has many invectives against people who are curious. Repeated injunctions not to inquire into God's mysteries, which were wisely hidden for mysterious divine purposes. This is an excellent means of keeping curious people, inquirers, people who wonder why the status quo is like it is, down. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a kind of repressive and governmental sort of oversight of human beings to keep them in line. It wasn't until the birth of empiricism in the 18th, actually the late 17th century, that curiosity began to be considered not only a virtue, but an avenue to real knowledge, real being scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge, right. Um, That was the era when empiricism was made the method for investigation and for the determination of truths. You didn't have any the idea of sort of innate truths anymore, that you're born as a little tiny person exactly the way you're going to be when you're grown up. So with empiricism and Locke's um, idea of how the personality is formed, Locke was a, John Locke was an epistemological philosopher, so what he was doing was trying to figure out how people learn and think and how they know, how do they get ideas. Mm-hmm. And his argument was we get it through our five senses and reflection upon them so that every single person learns differently So every single person is individual Mm -hmm. because no two experiences are identical. And that translates to scientific method. You can figure out how things work by experimentation and by the visual, particularly visual, but empirical confirmation of what's going on. They had no prejudices about what could be investigated and what could not. There was no limit to the things that they were censoring themselves, I guess. Not at all. So... You know, this was marvelous for the scientists, but it was appalling for society (laughs) because they seem to be valuing the wrong things. Right. And you asked also where it's going now. I have to tell you that nobody was looking at curiosity. Mm -hmm. Now, it's absolutely (laughs) extraordinary how much attention there is. They're all their books, their children's books, all of it's completely wonderful. And I'm absolutely thrilled. There is no topic, no topic that's more exciting. I'm sorry, there just isn't. But they do these, the general opinion is that curiosity is a a virtue and always has been. Uh And I think that's very misleading concept because it ignores the seamy underside which is always there. When you call something curious or someone curious, often as not, you're saying that they are odd, that they don't fit 
the form. There's something actually wrong with them. And if you think about curiosity, you can see logically why that would be the case. Because, um, it gets, again, it goes back to sort of the tradition, the biblical tradition. If you are happy in your position, if you, if you accept with resignation and humility the status that God has given you, you are a good person. But if you keep asking questions, then you're discontented. And there's something a bit wrong with you being discontented, or very wrong. You could be a witch. You could be, all, you, could, you know, and and that's still there. People people are very suspicious about curiosity. Nabokov says that curiosity is insubordination. It's the actual the spirit, the you know, the apex of insubordination. I think that is so clever. <laughs> I mean, of course, he he was completely brilliant. Of course, he had a way with words. <laughs> Collected, of course, butterflies. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, and I think that's a very, very productive way of thinking about it because insubordination is the refusal, of course, yeah. to yeah. to um, bow to conventional categories, right? And curiosity, in its very nature, penetrates those conventional categories and asks questions about them. I think that this is one of the reasons that women's curiosity is so derogated. Even in the period when curiosity was valorized, women asking questions like Pandora and Eve were almost always represented as being perverted in some fashion. They were objects of curiosity because they were insolent enough to ask questions and not to obey their role. And we, we haven't mentioned this, but I want to say that's one reason that women's curiosity is always sexualized mm -hmm. because it, it become they become the objects of curiosity, that strange little passage they have under you know between their legs and all right, that. What is it about yeah, that? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so female curiosity is a shorthand term for the illegitimate inquiry into what makes men men. Uh -huh. And that, of course, is sex. And so that's where that goes, as opposed to the disembodied, pure spirit of inquiry of male um, scientists. Well, and this was one of the things that struck me. Of course, you write about literature in this cultural context, and um, and you use the example of the um, floating island of Laputa in, in Gulliver's Travels, which... I have not read since either high school or college, but I remember in quite vivid detail this mocking of scientists. And this was another one of the things that sort of jumped out at me from your writing is that there's a lot of mocking of scientists now. Well, this is not new. <laughs> it's not new, is it? No, it's not. And the reasons they're mocked are the same as well. Yeah. Um, they're mocked for being absorbed, self-absorbed and lost in their own particular peculiar um, study, losing track of the kind of human, the greater human picture, um, being arrogant, advancing idiosyncratic truths in the face of the kind of moral fabric of society, right. the values. Absolutely. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Wharton, and I'm joined today by Barbara M. Benedict, a scholar of English literature. We're talking about curiosity and collecting. You write about collecting. And the chapter is in some ways also a collection of curious characters in all of the ways that we use that language. And you talk about these scientists as they're both objectively and subjectively curious. What does that mean? I think the best way to explain it 
I mean, it doesn't leap instantly to mind, is to think of uh, why something called a curiosity is so called. So a curiosity is an object which doesn't fit into common categories. It seems strange because you can't identify exactly what it is. Um, for example, uh, if you have a, um, a stone that looks like it's got a face on it, you are not really sure whether it's a stone or whether it's a sort of mummified you know, picture head or something. <laughs> you know, you know, who knows? That is an object that is curious. It is very strange to other people. You don't know what it is. And you, as an observer, are being curious about it. You're asking questions about the object. So the object is objectively curious. It is a curious object. And you are subjectively curious because you are asking the question. You're the subject asking the question. And what happens so often, and it still happens today, and it happens in, in literature, um, is that the people who are asking questions seem to other people to be themselves odd. What they're asking questions about things that are illegitimate or are forbidden in some way or are, or are prurient, or, you know, naughty or something like that. So their investigative desires kind of stamp them as being not a proper human and not quite right. Mm -hmm. So they become an object of curiosity because of their questioning. You had that wonderful moment when you sort of were like, wait a minute, curious reader. That's sort of an aha moment <laughs> yeah. about this. Have you had other moments where this mindset, this way of thinking has really mattered to you in a, in a kind of a personal or professional way? Hmm. This isn't quite, I think, the answer that you might want uh, because it's cerebral. But, uh, but Cerebral can be personal. I won't, I won't turn that away. Figuring out what the link was between curiosity as an inquiring impulse and curiosity as an object that's strange was very hard for me. I thought about it long and hard and I looked at hundreds of documents and then ping! <laughs> I got, I figured out that the, just take a deep breath because I know this is hard to take, but that the definition of curiosity, of a curiosity, a thing that's odd, is an ontological transgression registered empirically. Okay, unpack that one. That's okay. a beauty. Okay. <laughs> ontological means you know, having to do with the actual being. You could say categorical, but uh, ontological includes creatures that transmute their beings like werewolves and witches and ghosts. Okay. okay. So their fundamental essence, their being, their ontology, transgresses or steps over or bridges disparate categories. So let's take a ghost, for example. A ghost is simultaneously a spirit, a phenomenon without a body, and a human being. But a human being can't be a, a, a dead person. Once you're dead, you're dead. But a ghost is a dead person and also a human being. So the normal categories we use to define human beings don't apply. Um, or a witch is the same thing. Uh, an ontological transgression, a being who is occupies 
contradictory or mutually exclusive categories. Forms that are not supposed to be together. Forms that are not supposed to be together, yeah. exactly. Um, how do you know? You know it because you see it or smell it or hear it. That's how you know. Not because you were told it by a divine force or anything like that. It's because you actually have witnessed it. You had this beautiful way of talking about novels in particular as being the the genre that exploits curiosity most thoroughly and prompts rethinking. And I thought that was such an interesting point about sort of the telling of a story, the absorbing of a story, the experiencing of a story as the reader. You do. You're constantly sort of rethinking what the character's motives are, where this might go, what's likely to happen next. Tell me more about that. Well, I just wanted to add that the novel, as the name indicates, is a new genre. It's a right. novel genre. And, right. it, and it occurs when empiricism occurs because it's dedicated to what has happened today, now, that you can record empirically. So as a as a literary form, it shows up at the same time as this sort of scientific investigative mindset as well. That's right. I had not put that together. <clears throat> That's before, right. And yeah. so does journalism, mm -hmm. you know, for the same reasons. And journalism then as now was viewed askance by conventional thinkers because it investigated, you know, illegitimate things. It, that Journalism is engaged, as it is at this very moment, in uncovering crimes, misdemeanors, <laughs> sins, you know, errors of various Untruths. sorts, untruths, <laughs> various sorts of, um, you know, socially reprehensible behavior, which has been hidden. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it is the same principle of uncovering something that um, should be left alone, according to conventional thinkers. So journalism and the novel and science all work in cohorts, in a cohort to do this. So why, why is this study of this subject through literature, why does it matter? Why is it important? Oh, well, I think this is a way to explain why and how human beings make prejudicial judgments about other human beings. Mm. Uh, that's the most important thing. Every person who comes from a different culture is a curiosity to your culture. And if you can, if we, as a human race, if we can understand why we think that, we can then debunk those attitudes, those assumptions, those prejudices, and, you know, be more of a brotherhood of man. Secondly, and also very importantly, I think it helps us map our relationship to the material world around us. Collecting is a very good example of an attempt to control or to understand stuff. Right. And especially nowadays in the 20th century, 21st, excuse me, century, um, there's so much stuff. There's so many commodities. There's so many things around us. And we're always being asked to update and to replace and, and you know, out with the old souvenir and in with the latest model kind of thing. I think it's really important to try to understand the imaginative and emotional interaction of the material world and the spiritual and emotional world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think curiosity is an excellent way of doing that. You know, Freud said that people collect as a kind of compensatory gesture 
when they lose some of themselves by defecating. To be honest, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not a Freudian. <laughs> I think that really is absurd. I think it's a much more positive thing. Uh-huh. I, I, collecting's also been represented in history as being some kind of, of, of sort of selfish capitalistic accumulation at the expense of um, the practice of more moral and social values. Mm. I don't see this opposition. I don't think that's true. One thing about objects, even objects in your own um, cabinet of curiosities is that they have a profoundly social life um, Arjun Apadurai wrote a book called The Social Life of Things and it's true that things especially um, finely made things contain in them histories and stories of manufacturing of use and uh, again of the imagination of human beings I mean it's amazing the things that are produced they're lovely, beautiful things that, that human beings have made or collected even you know found objects can be regarded as curiosities you know a branch that looks like a hand for example so they're both art objects and natural objects and that's that's wonderful curiosity is a good way of understanding and valuing our relationship to the material world curiosity and curate have the same latin root Cura, to care. I wondered, what is it to curate the material world, to nurture a personal curiosity, build a collection, and then share them with a larger audience? My name is Larissa LeClaire, and I'm the founder of the Indie Photo Book Library. The idea for the library definitely did come out of noticing a movement with artists and photographers who were self-publishing, you know, in the early 2000s, sort of this next generation of artist books, self-publishers. Due to the nature of these self-published books, the print runs were very small, some in addition of 30, sometimes in addition of 50. So a lot of them were being bought up by private collectors, which means there were hardly any going to public collections. So I really sort of felt this need to slow down this pace of things going out of print very quickly, kind of in some ways disappearing into private collections. And I really felt that this kind of work that was being produced was important to the larger history of photography, It's a collection, really, that I think straddles the idea of what a library is and what an archive is, and is sort of between those two. There is that curiosity of looking at these books and experiencing these books, and then in terms of the archive idea, a necessity to preserve and to have this kind of collection not only together now, but in the future. Museums and libraries weren't really paying attention to what was being self-published. So I decided that one individual can start their own collection and make a difference, and, um, and that's what I did. Uh, and it blossomed into a, you know, from the beginnings of a DIY grassroots collection or archive of self-published photo books from around the world to 
now a very established collection that is permanently housed at the Beinecke Prayer Book Library at Yale in New Haven. It did accomplish the two goals, which was to create and establish more of a collective of these kinds of photographers to let self-publishers know around the world that there were little pockets of people doing exactly the same thing. And I really wanted it to be a resource for other photographers looking to self-publish. It really did and does encapsulate uh, a very important time for self-publishing, kind of this next wave of just this really flourishing and exciting movement of self-publishing. And so now, scholars and collectors and students and researchers can go to Beinecke and see examples of these kinds of books, and, and they're there for forever. And I think the Indie Photo Book Library definitely inspired other DIY collections, The Asia-Pacific Photo Book Archive was directly inspired from the IPL. Um, So you have also, you are seeing these regional collections of self-published photo books popping up. You had more photo book fairs and photo book festivals. And so it really was part of igniting a focus on self-published photo books. I think starting the Indie Photo Book Library has shown me that you can, an individual can shape history in their own little way, and you can think about what things or people or objects are and should be important to history, and you do not have to leave that up to traditional historians or writers or curators that you can equally have your own impact. One of my life goals is to inspire other people to start collecting or to become museum patrons, you know, just to think about the things that we own or that we're interested in and, you know, do they, are they part of history? Do they fit in history? Do they embody something that's not part of history that should be there, you know, just to think more broadly about how history is shaped, who shapes it, you know, what is not there, what's missing, and and what can be added, and it's actually quite easy. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us here today. You can find all my shows at my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to Be Curious. The Curiosity Studies Anthology, published in 2020, is its own collection of precious things, a collection that, like curiosity itself, seeks to model the multiple and ever-expanding nature of curiosity and establish a critically curious pedagogy. Barbara and Benedict and Larissa LeClaire offer iterations of the book's proposition that we should cultivate personal habits and learning environments that challenge norms and question power. And they remind us that we can do so through expressions of our own passions and interests. Many thanks to my guests, Barbara and Benedict and Larissa LeClaire. Links to their wonderful writings and collections, including the Indie Photo Library and Curiosity Studies on my website theme music and sitting in the pasture thanks to sean ballack we collect shiny things by love and weasel from blue dot sessions and research and other support by the wonderful caroline kish 
I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.